Welcome to Water Chat, the Global Water Forum podcast, bringing you and your ears today's freshest water insights. Follow along at www.globalwaterforum.org. Hello and welcome to Q&A. I'm joined today by Danny Dorling to discuss whether humanity is slowing down. Professor Danny Dorling, who is a Hallford McKinley Professor of Geography at the School of Geography here at the University of Oxford. Danny has been in Oxford since 2013. He grew up in Oxford and before that he was in Sheffield for uh, 10 years. Mm -hmm. Danny works on a huge number of uh, different things, including uh, geography and um, social equality. His recent books include uh, Rude Britannia, Brexit and the End of Empire. Peak Inequality, Britain's Ticking Time Bomb. He has a new book coming out very soon. Is the human species slowing down? Uh, Danny, very welcome to this program. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Good. Uh, the slowdown, because you say it's, it might be another year before it comes out. I'm doing it more slowly, but it's definitely going to happen. <laughs> okay, cool. Very cool. Yeah. So um, you have been working on this book for six years. Could you... Could you take me through how and why you started with this book uh, in the first place? And uh, what has your book to do with swimming pools in California? <laughs> okay. Uh, I started on this because I was uh, looking at population change in the world. And just at the time when the United Nations were moving their prediction from 10 billion to saying there'd be 11 billion people by the end of this century... I was looking at data which suggested that it would be less than that and that the population growth was slowing down even faster uh, than we knew at the time. Uh, the swimming pools, I've been looking at consumption levels of many, many things. For instance, the amount of paper we consume has dropped and so on. It's clothes are the one thing we, we have yet to actually reduce our consumption of, and that's just fashion. You know, you need to teach young people that they can wear a shirt till it's no longer wearable. Um, but swimming pools fascinated me. If you look at many parts of consumption, you'll find that across the rich world, people in the most unequal countries are consuming the most. Even the poor are buying and using more, despite not having money in unequal countries. In rich countries that are equal, people are much more careful uh, with what they do and what they spend. And one great example is water. In general, the use of water and the waste of water, and this is residential personal use, not industry and agriculture, um, is much higher in more unequal countries like the United States than in more equal countries like Japan or Germany or, or Finland. Uh, the one, the one uh, country which didn't fit this was the United Kingdom, which is pretty unequal, but doesn't use that much water. And I was trying to find an explanation for this, and, and eventually I, I realised that People in the UK tend not to have that many private swimming pools because the UK is actually quite a miserable, cold, dark country. And and building a swimming pool in your garden, if you, even if you're rich, is a pretty stupid thing to do. Um, so inequality doesn't explain everything. But private swimming pools are a really, I think, good example of societies going wrong. They're very expensive. They're very dangerous. There's, there's nobody to guard them for children. And they're not much fun compared to being in a swimming pool with other, other people. Um, so it's a lovely example of water use, which is excessive. 
and also not necessary. And if we're going to slow down in the future, we can swim just as much as, as we swim now, more than we swim now, but we can swim with other people. And just add one other thing. Um, I grew up in Oxfordshire. I never realised there were 2,000 lakes in this county. Uh, almost all of them are private, and you're not allowed to swim in any of them. <laughs> now, that isn't very hard to solve. But the, but the swimming pools are still booming in California, despite that they had a uh, drought and so on, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it shows the excess. I mean, California is, is the most stupid place on the planet for swimming pools, to the point where people were willing to pay the enormous fines that the state would impose on them and still fill up their swimming pool because it was their selfish right to do so. Hollywood actors um, have been fined for uh, diverting trucks to fire hydrants and, and filling up secretly. I mean, if you really want to see how badly behaved and stupid human beings can be, the swimming pools of California um, during a drought are, I think, the greatest exception uh, worldwide of just how bad we can we can get it. So what about people? Um, population is exploding, some people say. <laughs> you know, uh, I heard recently that we must do something about population explosion in Africa. Yeah. And there are so many people who don't have access to water. So if we don't do anything about that, we, we will have one billion Africans on a move. I mean, um, that's what I've heard here in, oh, Af- you do here, here you in do Oxford. Here. With oh, you're here in Oxford. Oxford isn't a particularly clever place. Um, we can actually look at levels of innumeracy across the rich world. And the United Kingdom is one of the most innumerable countries, and that will include the University of Oxford. People think they're very clever here, but, you know. Um, The population was exploding in the 1950s and 60s worldwide. It reached a peak growth rate of 2% a year. That was completely unsustainable. That was in the decade in which the population bomb. The book was written in 1968. Around that time, and coincidentally not because of that book, the growth rate began to abruptly slow. And it wasn't just the pill, it wasn't just contraceptives, it was a whole range of things. But the growth rate went down from 2 to 1.9%, 1.8%. It's now hovering just above 1% a year. And what we're all trying to work out is when will it hit zero. Um, and this is the first time in the history of the human species that it will hit zero. And it's going to happen within our children's lifetimes. We just don't know whether it's going to happen when they're middle-aged or old-aged. So there is no population explosion there's there is the biggest ever population deflation in the history of our species uh you know occasional events a plague and so on but this is a long term uh long run thing the main reason why the population of the earth is rising is because people are living longer and when you double the life expectancy of a population the same number of people actually end up being twice as many at any any point the number of babies we are having is tiny Africa was the one exception where the fertility rate didn't slow as much as other continents in the 1980s and 1990s. But we now know, or we're beginning to work out why. And it turns out that the structural adjustment programs of the IMF and the World Bank did such damage to the countries on the continent of Africa that they meant that advances in schooling for girls in particular were held back or actually even reduced. Um, So the rich world managed to create more babies in the poor world that has come to an end the fertility rate in, across africa has absolutely plummeted in the last six seven eight years um mainly because the economics are no longer as bad as as they once were but we're still talking three or four billion people in africa by the end of the century um in relative terms 
Africa is returning to the population size as a share of the global population that it had before the beginning of the slave trade. So by the end of this century we will be... Three or four million people in a very large continent of Africa. A billion. Three or four billion. Oh, yeah. Um, the It's a lot of space. Um, it's a huge amount of resources. The problem has always been people from other places coming in to exploit those resources. It's a huge amount of sunlight. I mean, simple things like this for solar energy. The, the, this, the, the space is enormous. The, the idea to fear population rise in Africa um, is just silly. I mean, if you want to know about population explosions, the place that did it first was Europe. We absolutely exploded. Um, Why? Partly, well, it was... Okay, it begins... I mean, the, it probably begins with 1492... Uh, 1492 and Columbus uh, hitting those islands in the Caribbean began an enormous change for Europe. Europe went from being a backwards, terrible, cold, smelly continent with rotting meat. He was trying to find spices so that you could carry on eating the rotting meat. It moved from being the least developed place on earth in many ways to become the centre of the world because we turned up in the Americas with our germs. 60 million people died. The germs moved ahead of us. It wasn't the conquistadors' weapons, it was the germs. And the Americas were full of a bit of gold, but a hell of a lot of silver. China lacked silver. Uh, China had a big problem with coinage. China was, an, was the stable, most advanced place of the world in 1492. The only thing it didn't have was enough silver. And suddenly we had silver. And the Spanish and the Portuguese had it, and this, I mean, what really should be called Western Asia. Europe isn't a continent, just look at the maps. But Western Asia rose up. We suddenly could get anything we wanted traded by tra by taking the gold and silver from the Americas and trading it for other things in the rest of the world. The silver moved, and it often through many, many hands, uh, mainly from South America, through to Peking um, and the spices and the crockery and everything else flowed back Europe became richer and richer uh, merchants did better and better every year René Descartes in Amsterdam I think in the 17th century uh, said all about me is madness everybody just wants to make money um, and that moved to London we begin to colonise, we take over more and more of the world. This country invaded what are now 170 of the 193 states of the United Nations. And the babies. We enclosed the land. We chucked peasants off the land. We, we made people homeless. Um, when you do that, the stable population systems of villages, which essentially are you do not have sex until you're married, break down. Um, so... And we could do that because we were getting corn from the Baltics and so on because we had money. The population begins to explode because of, of that and the breakdown of social structure and also because we needed more people. We had a planet to invade. We had the Americas to take over. Um, and we had uh, an endless source of places to send them. We could ship the convicts to Australia and the people who were not wanted to New Zealand. 
and the people who are a bit luckier to America, but, but all over the place. And so Europe had this enormous population boom and spread out across the planet. The population growth in Africa is nothing like that. Um, peak baby, Hans Roslin worked out, peak baby was 1990. We have a little peak now. Uh, 1990 was 29 years ago. So when you look at the age of mostly the men, some women coming across the Mediterranean, thousands dying, uh, they're the children of peak baby uh, in Africa. The irony is uh, Europe is set to depopulate. It was last in the 1970s that any country had two children per couple. Um, so Europe desperately needs people, but we're so good at being racist. Um, so I, I find it very hard to worry. I can see how it's possible to get people to worry about this phantom idea of the unknown hordes who will arrive. And, you know, you could maybe link it back to past events of centuries ago. Um, but the reality is that, that old Europeans are going to need young Africans to look after them in their old age because they haven't had enough of their own children, which is a good thing. Right. So how about water consumption globally? Is it is it also increasing? Also, my observation in China is that yeah. it's it's about to peak. Yes. And it's not going to increase very much. Indust industrial water use will go up. Yes. But it's it's not very much. But like I said, I I don't know the rest of the world. So well, the this is U UN figures suggest that agriculture is the biggest use, then industry, then personal. Um, Agricultural use or waste of water depends quite a lot on, on whether you try to grow things in places where it doesn't make sense to grow them. The, the classic example would be the Middle East. And the, the Middle East is really interesting over a, a part of the world which had a brilliant climate to settle in and create cities at one time. And now, honestly, if you can get away from the Middle East, it would be a rather sensible thing to do. Um, but water wasteful agriculture in, in places where it doesn't rain much is a big problem we can now ship food around the planet so we don't need to be growing it in places where we need as much water to grow it where the water doesn't rain stopping eating meat is just so obviously <laughs> um because the amount of water it takes to produce a cow yeah uh, is incredible let alone the ability of that cow to to graze on food stuff and create methane at a rate that's far more damaging than carbon cows are much more destructive than sheep or goats or poultry, although, you know, the most common bird on the planet is chicken now. Um, so, I, again, I, I'm, I'm not pessimistic about the water use and, and agriculture. If meat was good for us, I would be. You know, imagine if meat actually made you live much longer and was really healthy and vegetables are really bad for you, then we'd have a problem. Um, but as it is, we are designed to only occasionally eat a bit of meat uh, because that's what we used to eat. Because yeah. we were basically gatherers. We were a few men strutting around pretending they hunted. Who occasionally would catch a kangaroo. And you'd quickly eat as much of the kangaroo as you could. This is why we had feasts. Because meat rots. Um, but we are largely a vegetarian animal. And that is bloody lucky. But but meat meat consumption is still going up. It's it's not yes. slowing down. Oh, and particularly in China. I and mean, we are waiting for the first wave of the hipster Chinese vegetarians. You know, they will come. The lovely thing about young people is they like to be different, they like fashion, they want to be first. 
Um, I have gone over to China and said to large groups of students, you know, those of you who are the first to stop eating meat, you know, people will be so impressed in the future about you. Um, I could be wrong. There could be some amazing addictive thing about meat in China that means that people will carry out on gorging themselves with meat. But if you look at the United States or look at this country, uh, you know, I'm, I'd love to get really good figures on it. It shows the bubble I live in. I know hardly any people much younger than me who eat much meat. Okay, I'm a middle-class Oxford University professor. Um, I always, if I'm asked to a dinner or anything, uh, say I want the vegetarian option because of the embarrassment of sitting next to young vegetarians. You know, now, maybe we're weird, or maybe... And you can see this in many other things. You can see it in the trends in drug use. You can see it in terms of, you know, often trends begin amongst the affluent rich. And then that trend spreads. Um, my mum and dad were here in the early 1960s when the Beatles records were playing from every bedroom. Okay, only just slightly ahead. But the marijuana here was definitely ahead of the rest of the country. You know, so if the same thing happens with marijuana in Oxford, then we'll see vegans and vegetarians spreading just as quickly around the rest of the country, you know, and, and the world, and the world. Yeah. Because I, I was thinking, because the argument in your book is that everything is slowing down except temperature. Yeah. So I brought up another example. How about the drying up of rivers? I mean, th there was a new study in Nature, I think yeah. two weeks ago, that shows that about one third of the world's 246 long rivers are still free-flowing meaning they remain free from dams and other man-made water diversion structures that leave them increasingly fragmented. Yes. Yeah, things are still getting worse, but the rate at which they're getting worse is slowing. So although I haven't looked at the figures for rivers, I'd be willing to bet you several pints of beer that there will be a decade, which is not our current decade, in which the water flow fell faster. Uh, species is a good example. I've just been looking at data for, for the extinction of species. Uh, the 70s and 80s were truly awful. The 70s and the 80s were, where, were when uh, huge numbers of small, very rare mammals on small islands went extinct around the world. Now, the beginning of species extinction is, is the kind of the time when it's easiest to kill off species. And I'm not saying that there's, there isn't a problem with the continued species extinction. We're now killing off species that are much harder to kill off. But the peak acceleration of the species extinction has passed. The number of new species that are going extinct, at least for wanted backbones, uh, is slowing down dramatically. M my suspicion about the river flow is that it was the very first building, or well, not the very first, but the, when it got really sustained, the building of the really big dams in the really easy places, you know, where there was a set of mountains and somewhere where it was easy to put up will have had the biggest drop and fall. And also the other thing that, that occurs is engineers and others, I mean, they learn very slowly, but they do begin to realise that there will be problems ahead. Uh, they worked it out in France only less than a decade ago when they had to turn the nuclear power stations off because they couldn't get enough water to cool the reactors. Um, now, it's obvious after you say it, but the fact that they'd allowed to get themselves into that situation shows that they hadn't planned for it. And if you're going to have a country that's reliant on nuclear electricity, you have to let your rivers flow at a higher level. China is also very fascinating I mean, when I brought up this question, because there, I think there are around 40,000 
large dams around the world, and China has has twenty five thousand of them. Mm. So China has approximately built one very big large dam every day since nineteen yeah. fifties. Okay, yes. and they are yeah. still doing it. Yes, but now on international rivers. Yes, and the, the main reason is, I mean, if water and food mm. are actually not that serious. I mean, the 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 real challenge for China is energy. Yeah. So they, they they're building more dams because rapid energy demand. Yeah. Do you have do you have and, any and trying to drop coal and try, trying yeah. to because yeah you know, the approach of the Chinese compared to the Americans on on coal is so you know it's so much better and China has worked out that it is going to be a high energy consumption country in future although of course with rapidly falling absolute population um and they've relaxed the one child policy and discovered that people have got used to one child it's going to be very hard you could you could put in lots of incentives and you will actually find it hard to get people to have two <laughs> so i mean it's really interesting over you know, at what point will china realize it needs people to come and from where and which continent in the world is china currently most engaged with and okay it's engaged there because it wants the minerals and so on and but i suspect some chinese officials has also worked out that actually it's going to need some people too um it's the energy problem around the world. It's how do you stop burning coal before you have to stop burning coal? That is before the price actually goes up uh, too high. And water looks initially attractive. But solar power is getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Uh, wind power in various parts of China will work very well. The whole of Denmark uh, is now relying on wind power. It requires changes to national consciousness so famously in Denmark if you get a few days where there's no wind you have to have the washing machines turned off um, and you all have to smell for a bit uh, but that's it <laughs> and that, that's the kind that's the kind of uh, but you leave the you have the base loaded electricity still going so you can still use the internet in your computers you just turn the heavy duty stuff off human beings tend to learn by generation we don't tend to learn year on year on year. We have this impatientness about ourselves. Why can't we get it straight away? And if you step back and look through history, um, it wasn't that somebody invented something one year and the next year people thought that's a great idea and the, you know, the second year it was spread out. You know, big, big changes to ways of thinking are generational. Most people tend to still believe what they believed as a child a few people change their beliefs and come up with new ideas. And some of those new ideas, when presented to a new young generation, become what they believe as children. We are currently around the world teaching our children that we cannot consume like we are, that it's all going to go wrong. And that's the biggest hope for change because the whole generation is growing up knowing this doesn't work. What we haven't told them is that the reason why their parents and grandparents don't get it is they weren't told this as children. It's not their fault. If you were told as, well, I was taught as a child that the Ice Age was coming. I was told that the glaciers were still coming down, that we should expect to get very cold, that what we really need is more things to buy, bigger cars, more holidays. Um, we should spread this out amongst the poor. We should have luxury for everybody. That's what I grew up, grew up with as, as a child and thinking was possible. And... If you didn't grow up with that, it's much easier to think, I won't 
try to get that that doesn't make sense particularly if you're trying to share with what could be 10 billion people will probably be nine possibly even just eight um but it's a hell of a lot of people to share with and if you decide that those people are people which again is something human beings are only just doing i we don't see those people as inferior and inhuman if you actually decide that the people are people there's a hell of a lot of sharing to come uh, that, that we have not done for centuries and centuries and that requires the biggest change of attitudes in the richest countries some people say that water management will change more the next 20 years uh, mm. than the past 100 years and, the, and the, the catalyst for that will be the driving uh, uh, the catalyst that will be driving these changes will come from outside the water sector Yes. So how about how about technological changes? Is it is it accelerating much faster now than you know compared to nineteen thirties? Do you have any data on that or? Yeah, for the one I mean, the, the very big change for countries like the UK is nineteen thirteen, when when the sludge method of sewage systems was first used in Manchester, uh, and we forget this, this is relatively recent. Um, so sewage works, proper sewage works come in in 1913 and then in the 20s and 30s they're slowly spreading. I don't know the date of the one in the south of Oxford. If you want to know where the cheapest housing is in Oxford, it's within smell of the sewage of Oxford. Um, but that's all within the last 100 years. Um, so, the, so the greatest change in the last 100 years was at the beginning of those last 100 years in, ter in terms of water use and recycling of water. Because that water gets put into the rivers and used again and again. So we're here in Oxford, we are drinking water, which has been through about four or five human bodies by the time we get to drink it. But we can feel good because by the time our wastewater gets to London, it's already been through the bodies of people in Reading and so on. And, you know, it's, it's a dozen. Uh, the future, the, the rise in demand for people slows. You know, we're actually looking at only going from... 7.4 7.5 billion to adding net 2.5 billion um give you the classic problem with glasgow glasgow was one of the cities of europe which, which declined the most in size population halved over 40 years and it also halved in cities in, in eastern germany the real problem then was how on earth do you keep the water and sewer system going so a water sewer system built for a population that's twice as big when the rates you're getting, the amount of money or taxation you're getting from the population has, has halved because it didn't just halve in population, it became very poor. Um, so we're also going to need, I mean, the, the obvious thing for Glasgow was we should have just let people in. <laughs> you know, when you've already got the sunk built infrastructure of a sewer system, what are you doing allowing the population above those sewers to fall? Uh, sewers are the cathedrals of the modern world. We just don't see them. You know, some of them are absolutely enormous and beautiful. They are. We, we don't appreciate sewers as much as we should do. Um, so the changes to come, I think, will more affect agriculture and industry than people. Um, although hopefully people will quickly learn not to aspire to a swimming pool. And that's a big change. Uh to realise that the cost of one, especially one that you might heat, you know, actually paying to heat the water that you hardly ever use, is huge. They get dirty. They are one of the three most lethal things for children. The other two are cars and choking. But having a swimming pool in your garden is dangerous. 
having a swimming pool in the basement of your Mayfair house is even worse. Um, and, you know, you get drunk one night and think, oh, that'd be a good idea. I'll go swimming in the basement. Really is not good. You know, and human beings are designed to be social. That's why we like lounging around in Lido's. You know, it, it's, you know, the it's these kind of changes, I think, to how we live, how we realise that living together is, is more important. And you know, also learning that you don't need to water your little garden that that kind of thing for for a rich country um the idea that all the worry about this is is really a worry about the size of our brains it says are we actually incapable because we are just apes are we incapable of working out what to do are a few of us so selfish and greedy that they will get the bulk of the resources and push their agenda forward which is stupid and the hope comes in collective thinking so it isn't that there are a few individuals who are clever enough to work out what the answers will be the hope is that collectively human beings between themselves work out what they need to do it becomes called common sense or science if you like i mean the whole of science is about producing huge amounts of collaborative papers and they're looking at each other's papers and saying which papers are good and collaboratively, we'll work out what is this sensible to do with water? What is it not sensible to do? Does it make sense to produce aluminium with large amounts of water and electricity in Iceland or not? Do we need as much aluminium as we currently make? Those, those kind of things. We're moving away from a particular period of fantasy in the 1960s, 70s, and it began to go in the 80s. A fantasy that we didn't have to think about any of this. There was no need to think because this magic thing called the market would tell us what to do. Right? We know that's utter rubbish now, hmm. uh, apart from a few people who are very slow. Um, but that doesn't mean you replace the market with a small committee of super clever people. We know that's also stupid. Um, <laughs> so we know we, we've had various natural experiments around the world where that's been tried. Um, so it's a different thing. Um, and it's a collective common uh, behavior which I, i'm optimistic about um but the alternative if, I, if i'm wrong <laughs> yeah if we are incapable of collectively making better decisions then, then that is the end of it there are so many things that can go wrong how how about artificial intelligence i mean we have mm. pretty much been drilled down, it's been pretty much <laughs> drilled down in our heads you know artificials coming and yeah. they're going to take over everything and Oh, it has, hasn't it? Um, there was a wonderful kind of... I mean, the, the, bit, the big age of acceleration for artificial intelligence was the 1960s. Oh. Um, yeah. Um, so it was really big. If you, you can, And that was when people were, were most interested in it. And it's when the first artificial intelligence machine was made. It was called Conway's Game of Life. And it was the cellular automator, and it was actually a computer program that could theoretically create a, a computer that could program itself um, because it could produce um, logic, logic gates um, in, in Conway's Game of Life in 1968. So that's when it began. Um, I looked at artificial intelligence in the 1980s in my PhD, at which point we just about managed to emulate a sea slug, which is about the most stupid creature on Earth. Um, where we've got to now is, is really good pattern recognition. When, it, when it's fed with really good data. So Google Translate works brilliantly between European languages 
because tens of thousands of really skilled interpreters working for the European Union had to translate all these official documents into Swedish and English and French and German. So if you've got that really good source data, you can you can train a neural network and so on to translate between languages. Um, pattern recognition of faces is quite good at that now. Um, number plates, that kind of thing. Beyond that, um, you know, people don't realise the difference between artificial intelligence and pattern recognition. They also don't get, I think, how games like Go and Chess with very simple rules, you know, if a computer couldn't actually beat a human, that's just quite amazing how good human beings are at those games, to be honest. Um, it's very easy to scare people about things they don't know. The number of people writing on artificial intelligence who haven't got a clue what it is, who could never program a computer at all, not even a line of code, is stunning. I, I, in the last five years, I've been amazed. You can build a whole career being an artificial intelligence expert without being able to write the most simple program to land a, you know, a rocket on the moon. There's no need. Um, so I, my general view is it's an exploitation of ignorance. Um, we have, you know, some sort of clever, you know, I talk to, what's her name? Is it, no, it's not Siri, I've forgotten her name. There's somebody in my kitchen, um, it's electronic. I think Amazon provided it. I ask her a question, she reads me out the box from Wikipedia for the def definition. Um, okay, pattern recognition, she's recognized my voice. Pattern recognition, she's turned the voice into a string of words. And then she's matched that. Uh, and the matching is really good for questions that are commonly asked, which are most questions you asked. However, if you try to ask her things, which you think, has anybody ever asked this question before? You'll never get an answer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, if this is true then, that humanity is slowing down in almost everything that we do, what does this mean for politics and you know how we're structuring our societies? Okay. The, the interesting thing about politics, I've got to say, these are just my ideas. And the one thing I'm sure about is that almost all of them will be wrong, okay? That, that's once you learn. But if you try to work out a rate of change of politics, and particularly new political ideas, um, so on the left, these might be Chartism and Levelers and then Socialists and Communists and so on, or Anarchists. Um, and on the right, it will be various forms of Conservatism, Fascism, uh, and maybe the latest could possibly be neoliberalism or Thatcherism. Mm. The rate of creation of the isms has absolutely fallen. Um, you know, we really are carrying on. If you if you look at the European political blocs, you know, liberals, it's a 200-year-old idea, being liberal. It was a set of industrialists and, and slightly more fashionable aristocrats who didn't like um, the more conservative conservatives amongst the upper orders who wanted more free trade for their businesses and didn't want the people who owned land to be so protected you know we still have a few liberals kind of left Macron is a, is a famous liberal in, in France um, young trendy anarchists of today keep on referring back to princes who who were famous anarchists and you know, the, the odd bloke from New York in the 1970s who wrote some good stuff 
it's really interesting. And so, so my, my take on it is that things were fairly stable for centuries. The core beliefs were religious. Um, how the world works, you were told. It was just there. Um, this is what you have to do. This is how you have to behave. Occasionally, people have religious disputes. It's occurred across Europe. So our, our countries of Europe are basically fights between princes who believe different things. Really believed it. Yeah. In that they thought they were going to burn in hell for eternity if they got it wrong. And then when we moved away from that, moved away from religion, we started to play with different ideas. And you get this flourishing of different ideas and the fact that we now so often refer back to things that were written in the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century suggests to me that it's slowing down. And I worry, I'm getting old. I worry I'm, there's a brilliant new idea out there and I've just completely missed it and I don't get it because I'm too old. I, th I think it, uh, one famous, well, quite famous mm. anarchist, Noam Chomsky, he said uh, we should not look for heroes, we should look for ideas. Mm -hmm. mm. But yeah. yeah, I mean, if you look at the United States... It's a, it's a two-party system. Actually, it's a, it's a one-party system. Yeah. It's a business party. Yes. Yeah, the, the Democrats and Republicans are both, both owned by money at the moment. Um, but it's an extreme. The United States is a failed state. Um, it just doesn't yet know it's failed. But, you know, look at its debt. You know, the day that China decides not to send the refrigerators, you know, Trump thinks he can have a trade war with China. Yeah. What, what does America make, apart from aeroplanes? including a very large number that are currently grounded because they're unsafe by Boeing. Um, America is a failed state. China's much more interesting politically. Um, yeah. you know, looking at, and I'm not saying that over, I think it's a great thing. Although if you just look at numbers, you look at babies dying in cities, I think China's now actually probably overtaken the US with mortality. But it's a different kind, it's an evolution of communism. Uh, I really think it's very funny when people say oh, communism died in 1989. You go... But it's really not... Com I mean, it, yeah. It's an evolution of it. Uh, just as the Maoist insurgencies that you see around the world are an evolution of Maoism. They've changed, but you're still... Essentially, there's an idea that people do things collectively, but in quite a top-down and hierarchical way. Um, what the anarchists dislike, and I've got huge sympathy for them, is is the top-down and hierarchical side of it. Um, the problem with anarchism is it, it kind of works very well when you haven't got a large number of people, but I have yet to see a well-run city run by anarchists. That's it, it, Anarchism is great in low-density areas where, you know, if you don't get on with everybody else, and you can just walk away and be somewhere else. Um, but... <sighs> I think we're settling towards things that are sensible. And we we should be careful about the words we have for them. For instance, in Germany, what in Germany they call the right wing. In Britain, and this is Merkel and, and her, her party, in Britain that would be seen as left of Jeremy Corbyn. Mm. So we have to be very careful that the words that are used yeah. in different countries. Tokyo, you know, if you want what yeah. I would call in some ways a communist-ordered society, Yeah. Tokyo is far more communist than Shanghai. Far less, um, you know, over, you can't suddenly do things that are different. There are loads of officials to go through. There are rules. Um, we never think of Tokyo as being communist. But um, 
What do you mean with that? Can you can you specify a little bit? I mean, uh, if you wanted to suddenly become very rich in Tokyo, and you'd found some way of making money from the rest of the world, and you wanted to take over a large number of buildings, it would be very hard to do that. We know it would be very hard to do that because people haven't done it. So. Tokyo and Japan has the lowest proportion of extremely rich people in the rich country in the world. The take of the 1% is remarkably low. There is some form of social control going on uh, to reduce the behavior of greed. And it's not innate because Japan was incredibly unequal in the 1920s and 1930s. There's nothing special or different about uh, Japan. It's a history of it. But the way I, what I do is I look at the data. And so you look at the data and you look at the outcomes. You say, where were people living the longest? Where have they been given up cars for 20 or 30 years? The number of cars has been going down and down and down. Where's public transport really work? Um, where's food really healthy? Where's meat consumption really low? And I keep on looking at Tokyo. It keeps on coming up. Um, we, it's amazing how little we look at Tokyo. And it's stabilized. So it's not rising, it's not falling in population. And not only that, it's not actually changing shape anymore. So there were, Tokyo went through decades and decades of the suburbs were growing, then the middle was growing, then the suburbs were growing, and now it's just it. And we find it really hard to think a city could stay roughly the same, 30-odd million people yeah. in 10 years, 30 years, 60 years' time. But wouldn't that also be incredibly boring? I mean, if everything is slowing down and we're we're all reaching the, the yeah. same destination, it's it, it 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 can't be true, right? We don't know, but it's been true for most of human history. So there have been times when things have suddenly changed, often only for one or two generations, or a bit longer if you suddenly have to all go to the desert and find a promised land. Um, but for most of human history, things have been quite like they were for your parents or grandparents and, and so on um, it need not be boring to, to answer the does it have to be boring question you have to look all around the world and you have to say were the original people in Australia bored for the 50,000 years in which things didn't change that much in Australia or did they learn how to dream um I suspect that boredom is something that we've particularly created in the last 200 years of industrialization because we brought in extremely repetitive jobs that give you an aversion to boredom. I was taken as a child to the car factory here um, by my father, I think, to warn me about not working hard at school. Uh, because, I mean, honestly, having to do exactly the same thing every minute, again and again and again for an eight-hour shift. Um so I, I suspect, and of course we brought in the clock uh, to control people. I The idea that you can't not be bored because the world isn't going to be changed. I mean, it, it, you know, the, the, only, the only source of potential excitement is the idea that the future is going to be very different. You, you, particularly, you know, yeah. I'm an old man. There are ways in which you can have fun we can have fun when you're old, but honestly, the ways of children are very good at not getting bored. They just need lots of other children. 
you put a child in a house on their own with a parent looking after them all day and that's a recipe of boredom. What children find fascinating is other children. I used to work in playgroups. Just put a pile of toddlers on a rug and they will not be bored. Um, it's So a lot of boredom is has been created by ways in which we've chosen to live now. But we don't have to consume and, and use more to be excited. And we also know there's loads of studies now on holidays. So we know that actually holidays, the thing we think are going to be interesting, on average, don't make you happier and are not a success. Um, so I'm not saying you shouldn't have holidays, but it's the, the, the boredom thing and what you're going to do and how are you going to have fun and how are you going to be happy and how are you going to feel included and respected and seen and not ostracized and part of something uh, really matters for the future one one brilliant current trend is that the amount of wilderness in the world is rising rapidly because people are abandoning the most uh, isolated rural areas um, in some cases a few of the young are going back which is great uh, because you need some people to actually keep them going but the amount of space to go and explore that's relatively near you, which allows you to get away from everybody, is going up and up and up. You've just got to not go to Paris or not go to Snowdon in Snowdonia. Go to the rest of Snowdonia. You know, and working out that you can do that if you want to be on your own. The, I, yeah, I, I, I can't believe we can't help people not be bored without having to be very different again and again and again. All right, so when is your book coming out, uh, coming out and what's the title of it? Have you The title, the working title at the moment is just Slowdown. Slow uh, it'll have a subtitle, which we'll argue about. I wanted to call it The Favourable Seasons, which is Charles Darwin's word about what happens before a species extinct. but that was too pretentious. It's just called Slowdown. Yale University Press are printing it. Probably summer of 2020, uh, it has to be still refereed, checked. Uh, and also, if you're writing a book saying things are slowing down, there isn't, you know, there's no hurry over, over producing it. Um, but short of global temperature rising, short of number of graduates in the world, that will slow down, but that is currently exponentially rising, short of air passengers, everything else I can measure is slowing down. And that's really, really interesting. And I think it's really hopeful. All right. Uh, it was a true, true privilege to have you on. And uh, thank you very much, Danny. Thank you ever so much. You've been listening to Water Chat. If you would like to know more about anything discussed on today's program, you can find us at globalwaterforum.org. You can also catch us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at GWFWater. And Facebook, we can be found at facebook.com forward slash global water forum. Thanks so much for tuning in. We look forward to catching you next time.